Morning. I say ye, Zach Lefebvre. The year 1776, celebrated as the birth year of the nation and for the signing of the Declaration of Independence, was for those who carried the fight for independence forward a year of all too few victories, of sustained suffering, disease, hunger, desertion, cowardice, disillusionment, defeat, terrible discouragement, and fear, as they would never forget but also of phenomenal courage and bedrock devotion to country. And that, too, they would never forget. A quote from David McCullough. This sermon this morning is from the Reverend Dr. John Witherspoon, the only clergyman to sign the Declaration. Witherspoon's words make to a nation that hadn't yet realized fully that it existed. The passion of this sermon is but a taste of the character of the Second Continental Congress that would, in a matter of weeks, declare the causes that impelled the 13 colonies to separate from Great Britain. To the assertion that America was not ripe for independence, Witherspoon retorted, In my judgment, sir, we are not only ripe, but rotting. New Hope is a community of Christ followers that believes that our Lord's kingdom has in a sense come and, in a sense, is yet to come. If the kingdom is both now and not yet in 2012, then it stands to reason that our Lord was alive and well in 1776. Regardless of the right and wrong, regardless of the passions of men, Witherspoon's sermon will remind us that Jesus is the Lord and true King. Good morning. I'll ask the congregation to please stand now for the reading of the Word of God. From Psalm 76, in Judah is God known, his name is great in Israel, in Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion, there break he the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword and the battle, thou art more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey, the stout hearted are spoiled, they have slept their sleep, and none of the men of might have found their hands. At thy rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse are cast into a dead sleep. Thou, even thou, art to be feared. And who may stand in thy sight when once thou art angry? Thou didst cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to judgment to save all the meek of the earth, surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain, thou, and pay unto the Lord your God, let all that be round about him bring presence unto him that ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is terrible to the kings of the earth. You may be seated. The dominion of providence over the passions of men. A sermon preached at Princeton on the 17th of May, 1776. Being the general fast appointed by the Congress through the United Colonies by the Reverend Dr. John Witherspoon, President of the College of New Jersey. There is not a greater evidence either of the reality or the power of religion than a firm belief of God's universal presence and a constant attention to the 
influence and operation of his providence. It is by this means that the Christian may be said in the emphatical scripture language to walk with God and to endure as seeing him who is invisible. The doctrine of divine providence is very full and complete in the sacred oracles. It extends not only to things which we may think of great moment and therefore worthy of notice, but to things the most indifferent and inconsiderable. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, says our Lord, and one of them falleth not to the ground without your heavenly father? Nay, the very hairs on your head are numbered. It extends not only to things beneficial and salutary, or to the disdirection and assistance of those who are the servants of the living God, but to the things seemingly most hurtful and destructive, and to the persons the most refractory and disobedient. He overrules all his creatures and all their actions. Thus we are told that fire, hail, snow, vapor, and stormy wind fulfill his word. In the course of nature and evil, even so, the most impetuous and disorderly passions of men that are under no restraint from themselves are yet perfectly subject to the dominion of Jehovah. They carry his commission. They obey his orders. They are limited and restrained by his authority, and they conspire with everything else in promoting his glory. There is the greater need to take notice of this, that men are not generally sufficiently aware of the distinction between the law of God and his purpose. They are apt to suppose that as the temper of the sinner is contrary to the one, so the outrages of the sinner are able to defeat the other, than which nothing can be more false. The truth is plainly asserted and nobly expressed by the psalmist in the text. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. Now this psalm was evidently composed as a song of praise for some signal victory obtained, which was at the same time a remarkable deliverance from threatening danger. The author was one or other of the later prophets and the occasion probably the unsuccessful assault of Jerusalem by the army of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, in the days of Hezekiah. Great was the insolence and boasting of his generals and servants against the city of the living God, as may be seen in the 36th chapter of Isaiah. Yet it pleased God to destroy their enemies and by his own immediate interposition to grant them deliverance. Therefore, the psalmist says in the fifth and sixth verses of this psalm, the stout-hearted are spoiled. They have slept their sleep. None of the men of might have found their hands at thy rebuke, O God of Jacob. Both the chariot and the horse are cast into a deep sleep. After a few more remarks to the same purpose, he draws the inference or makes the reflection in the text, surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath shall thou restrain which may be paraphrased as thus. The fury and injustice of oppressors shall bring in a tribute of praise to thee. The influence of thy righteous providence shall be clearly discerned. The countenance and support thou wilt give to thine own people shall be gloriously illustrated. Thou shalt set the bounds which the boldest cannot pass. I am sensible, my brethren, that the time and occasion of this psalm may seem to be, in one respect, ill-suited to the <clears throat> interesting circumstances of our country at present. It was composed after the victory was obtained, whereas we are now but putting on the harness and entering upon an important contest, the length of which 
is impossible to foresee. And the issue of which it will perhaps be thought presumption to foretell. But as the truth with respect to God's moral government is the same and unchangeable as the issue in the case of Sennacherib's invasion, but did but lead the prophet to acknowledge it. Our duty and interest conspire in calling upon us to improve it. And I have chosen to insist upon it on this day of solemn humiliation, as it will probably help us to a clear and explicit view of what should be the chief subject of our prayers and endeavors, as well as the great object of our hope and trust in our present situation. The truth, then, asserted in this text, which I propose to illustrate and improve, is that all the disorderly passions of men, whether they are exposing the innocent to private injury or whether they are arrows of divine judgment in public calamity, shall in the end be praise to God. Or, to apply it more particularly to the present state of the American colonies, and the plague of war, the ambition of mistaken princes, the cunning and cruelty of oppressive and corrupt ministers, and even the inhumanity of brutal soldiers, however dreadful, shall finally promote the glory of God. And in the meantime, while the storm continues, his mercy and kindness shall appear in prescribing bounds to their rage and their fury. In discoursing on this subject, it is my intention through the assertion of divine grace, to point out to you in some particulars how the wrath of man praises God, to apply these principles to our present situation by inferences of truth for your instruction and comfort and by suitable exhortations to duty in the important crisis. In the first case, I am to point out to you in some particulars how the wrath of man praises God. I say in some instances because it is far from being in my power either to mention or to explain the whole. There is an unsearchable depth in the divine counsels, which it is impossible for us to penetrate. It is the duty of every good man to place the most unlimited confidence in divine wisdom and to believe that those measures of providence that are most unintelligible to him are yet planned with the same skill and directed to the same great purposes as others, the reason and tendency of which he can explain in the clearest manner. But where revelation and experience enables us to discover the wisdom, equity, or mercy of divine providence, nothing can be more delightful or profitable to a serious mind. And therefore, I beg your attention to the following remarks. In the first place, the wrath of man praises God, as it is example and illustration of divine truth and clearly points out the corruption of our nature, which is the foundation stone of the doctrine of redemption. Nothing can be more absolutely necessary to true religion than a clear and full conviction of the sinfulness of our nature and state. Without this, there could be neither repentance in the sinner nor humility in their behavior. Without this, all that is said in the scripture of the wisdom and mercy of God in providing a savior is without force, without meaning. Justly does our savior say, the whole have no need of a physician, but those that are sick. I came not to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who are not sensible that they are sinners will treat every exhortation to repentance and every offer of mercy with disdain and defiance. Secondly, the wrath of man praiseth God as it is the instrument of his hand for bringing sinners to repentance, 
for the correction and improvement of his own children. Whatever be the nature of the affliction with which he visits either persons, families, or nations, whether it be the disposition or intention of those whose malice he employs as a scourge, the design on his part to rebuke men for iniquity, to bring them to repentance, and to promote their holiness and peace. Lastly, the wrath of man praises God as he sets bounds to it or restrains it by his providence and sometimes makes it evidently a mean of promoting and illustrating his glory. There is no part of divine providence in which a greater beauty and majesty appears. And when the almighty ruler turns to the counsels of wicked men into confusion and makes them militant against themselves. If the psalmist may be thought to have had a view of this um, in the text to the truths illustrated in the two former observation, there is no doubt at all that he had a particular view to this. As he says in the latter part of the verse, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. The scripture abounds with instances in which the designs of oppressors were either wholly disappointed or an execution fell far short of the malice of their intention. And in some, they turned out to the honor and happiness of the persons or the people whom they were intended to destroy. Proceed now to the second general head, which was to apply the principles illustrated above to our present situation by inferences of truth for your instruction and comfort and by suitable exhortations to duty in this important crisis. I shall now conclude this discourse by some exhortations on duty founded upon these truths which I have, uh, which have been illustrated above and suited to the interesting state of this country at present time. Suffer me to recommend to you an attention to the public interest of religion or in other words, zeal for the glory of God and the good of others. I have already endeavored to exhort sinners to repentance, which I have here in view is to point out to you the certain, uh, the, the, the concern which every good man ought to take in the national character and manners, and the means which he ought to use for promoting public virtue and bearing down in piety and vice. This is a matter of the utmost moment and which ought to be well understood both in its nature and principles. Nothing is more certain than that a general profligacy and corruption of manners make a people ripe for destruction. A good form of government may hold the rotten materials together for some time, but behold, but beyond a certain pitch, even the best constitution will be ineffectual and slavery must ensue. On the other hand, when the manners of a nation are pure, when true religion and internal principles maintain their vigor, the attempts of the most powerful enemies to oppress them are commonly baffled and disappointed. This will be found equally certain, whether we consider the great principles of God's moral government or the operation and influence of natural causes. Uh, what follows from this? That he is the best friend to American liberty, who is most sincere and active in promoting true and undefiled religion, and who sets himself with the greatest firmness to bear down profanity and immorality of every kind. Whoever is a vowed enemy, whoever is an avowed enemy to God, I scruple not to call him an enemy to his country. Do not suppose, my brethren, that I mean to recommend a furious and angry zeal for the circumstantials of religion or the contentions of one sect with another about the peculiar distinctions 
I do not wish you to oppose anybody's religion, but everybody's wickedness. Perhaps there are few sure remark, a few sure remarks of the reality of religion than when a man feels himself more joined in spirit to a true holy person of a different denomination than to an irregular liver of his own. It is therefore your duty in this important and critical season to exhort yourselves, everyone in his proper sphere, to stem the tide of prevailing vice, to promote the knowledge of God, the reverence of his name and worship, and the obedience of his laws. Perhaps you will ask, what is it that you are called to do for this purpose farther than your own personal duty? I answer this itself when taken in its proper extent is not a little. The nature and obligation of visible religion, I am afraid, little understood and less attended to. Many from a real or pretended fear of the imputation of hypocrisy banish from their conversion and carriage every appearance of respect and submission to the living God. What a weakness and meanness of spirit does it discover for a man to be ashamed in the presence of his fellow sinners, to profess that reverence to Almighty God, which he inwardly feels. The truth is, he makes himself truly liable to the accusation which he means to avoid. It is as genuine and perhaps a more culpable hypocrisy to appear to have less, less religion than you really have than to appear to have more. This false shame is a, a more extensive evil than is commonly apprehended. We contribute constantly through insensibility, though insensibly, to form each other's character and manners. And therefore, the usefulness of a strictly holy and conscientious deportment is not confined to the professor or possessor, but spreads its happy influence to all that are within its reach. I need scarcely add that in proportion as men are distinguished by understanding, literature, rank, office, wealth, or any other circumstances, their example will be useful on the one hand or pernicious on the other. But I cannot content myself with barely recommending a silent example. There is a dignity and virtue which is entitled to authority and ought to claim it. In many cases, it is the duty of a good man, by open reproof and oppression, to wage war with profaneness. There is a scripture precept delivered in very singular terms to which I beg your attention. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thy heart, but shalt in any wise rebuke him and not suffer sin upon him. How prone are many to represent reproof as flowing from ill nature and surliness of temper. The spirit of God, on the contrary, considers it as the effect of inward hatred or want of genuine love to forbear reproof when it is necessary or may be useful. I am sensible there may be in some cases be a restraint from prudence agreeably to that caution of our Savior, cast not your pearls before swine, lest they trample under, uh, them under their feet and turn again and rent you. Of this every man must judge, as well as he can for himself, but certainly either by open reproof or expressive silence or speedy departure from such society, we ought to guard against being partakers of other men's sins. To this, let me add, that if all men are bound in some degree, certain classes of men are under peculiar ob obligations to the discharge of this duty. Magistrates, ministers, parents, heads of families, and those whom age has rendered venerable 
are called to use their authority and influence for the glory of God and the good of others. Bad men themselves discovered an inward conviction of this, for they are often liberal in their reproaches of persons of grave characters or religious profession. If they bear with patience the profanity of others, instead of enlarging on the, enlarging on the duty of men in authority in general, I must particularly recommend this matter to those who have the command of soldiers enlisted in the defense of their country. The cause is sacred, and the champions for it ought to be holy. Nothing is more grieving to the heart of a good man than to hear from those who are going to the field the horrid sound of cursing and blasphemy. It cools the ardor of his prayers, as well as abates his confidence and hope in God. Many more circumstances affect me in such a case than I enlarge you, or indeed easily enumerated present, the glory of God, the interest of the deluded sinner, going like a devoted victim, and imprecating vengeance on his own head, as well as cause itself committed to his care. We have sometimes taken the liberty to forebode the downfall of the British Empire from the corruption and degeneracy of the people. Unhappily, the British soldiers have been distinguished among all nations in Europe for the most shocking profanity. Shall we then pretend to emulate them in this internal distinction or rob them of the horrid privilege? God forbid! Let the officers of the army in every degree remember that as military subjection, while it lasts, is the most complete of any, it is in their power greatly to restrain, if not wholly to banish this flagrant enormity. I exhort all who are not called to go in the field to apply themselves with the utmost diligence to works of industry. It is in your power by this means not only to supply the necessities, but to add strength to your country. Habits of industry prevailing in society not only increase your wealth as their immediate effect, but they prevent the introduction of many vices and are intimately connected with sobriety and good morals. Idleness is the mother or nurse of almost every vice and want, which is its inseparable companion, urges men on to the most abandoned and destructive discourses. Industry, therefore, is a moral duty of the greatest moment absolutely necessary to national prosperity and the sure way of obtaining the blessings of God. I would also observe that in this, as in every other part of God's government, obedience to his will is as much a natural mean as a meritorious cause of the advantage we wish to reap from it. Industry brings up a firm and hardy race. He who is injured to the labor of his field is prepared for the fatigueness of a campaign. The active farmer who rises with the dawn and follows his team or plow must in the end be an overmatch for those effeminate and delicate soldiers who are nursed in the lap of self-indulgence and whose greatest exertion is in the most important preparation for and tedious attention on a masquerade or a midnight ball. In the last piece, place, Suffer me to recommend to you frugality in your families and every other article of expense. This, the state of things among us, renders absolutely necessary. And it stands in the most immediate connection both with a virtuous industry and active public spirit. Temperance and meals, moderation and decency of dress, furniture and equipage have, I think, generally been characteristics of a distinguished patriot. 
And when the same spirit pervades a people in general, they are fit for every duty and able to encounter the most formidable enemy. The general subject of the preceding discourse has been the wrath of man praising God. If the unjust oppression of your enemies, which withholds from you many of the usual articles of luxury and magnificence, shall contribute to make you clothe yourselves and your children with the works of your own hands and cover your tables with the solitary productions of your own soil, it will be a new illustration of the same truth and the real happiness to yourselves and your country. I wish to have every good thing done from the purest principles and noblest views. Consider, therefore, that the Christian character, particularly the self-denial of the gospel, should extend to your whole deportment. In early times of Christianity, when the adult converts were admitted to baptism, they were asked, among other questions, do you renounce the world, its shrews, its pomp, its vanities? I do. The form of this is still preserved in the administration of baptism, where we renounce the devil, the world, and the flesh. This certainly implies not only abstaining from acts of gross intemperance and excess, but a humility of carriage, a restraint and moderation in all your desires. The same thing, as it is suitable to your Christian profession, is also necessary to make your, you truly independent in yourselves and to feed the source of liberta- liberality and charity to others or to the public. The riotous and wasteful liver, whose craving appetites make him constantly needy, is and must be subject to many masters. According to the saying of Solomon, the borrower is servant to the lender, but the frugal and the moderate person who guides his affairs with discretion, is able to assist the public councils by a free and unbiased judgment, to supply the wants of his poor brethren, and sometimes by his estate and substance to give imported aid to a sinking country. Upon the whole, I beseech you to make a wise improvement of the present threatening aspect of public affairs, and to remember that your duty to God, to your country, to your families, and to yourself is the same. True religion is nothing else but an inward temper, an outward conduct, suited to your state and circumstances in providence at any time. And as peace with God and conformity to Him adds to the sweetness of created comforts while we possess them, so in times of difficulty and trial, it is in the man of piety and inward principle that we may expect to find the uncorrupted patriot, the useful citizen, and the invincible soldier. Let us pray. God, grant that in America, true religion and civil liberty may be inseparable. And that the unjust attempts to destroy the one may in the issue tend to the support and establishment of both. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen.